Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of. Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, good morning to you. Good morning, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm all right, thanks. I'm all right. Had a fairly uh, quiet, chilled out weekend. Watched a bit of Glastonbury here and there. Drank a bit of wine. Watched yeah. Watched a mad movie with Nicolas Cage. Uh, oh, the one about being Nicolas Cage. <laughs> basically, it, yes. Yeah. It's called The Incredible Weight of Being Nicolas Cage or something like that. Yeah, massive talent or something. That's like that. it. Yes, the unbear the unbearable weight of massive talent, where massive talent obviously equals Nicolas Cage. I've heard um, that's quite good fun. Is it? It was a good Saturday night kind of switch your brain off movie. Um, yeah. Some good self deferential, referential bits of comedy from from Nicolas Cage. Um, you know, who is quite a mad guy, really, when you think about it. Um, So, yeah, it was quite good. It was quite good. I I enjoyed it, you know, on that basis. Like, I don't think it's going to win any awards or or anything like that. But just to switch off on a Saturday night and watch a movie wasn't bad at all. What about you? How's it going? Yeah, I've been doing the the Sofa Glastonbury experience, um, which part of me suspects may actually be the optimal Glastonbury experience. Um, Less mud, less queuing. Toilet, sure. toilet facility significantly better and definitely cleaner, I would yeah. say. Yeah, and with the magic of the red button, you know, you can <laughs> switch stage to stage. You don't have to trek across a, a few fields to get there. But, yeah, <laughs> so I, I thoroughly enjoyed watching that. And, of course, keeping abreast of all the comings and goings at Arsenal because transfer window never sleeps. It never sleeps, and it's it's really all about one man today. Jesus. You said it, man. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. So <laughs> I just couldn't resist. I had to get that in somewhere. Um, yeah, I mean, Gabriel Jesus. Well, of course, there would be 
a significant development in the deal on a Sunday. Mm. What with it being Jesus? I mean, it would be uh, <laughs> remiss for there not to be the case. But I, yeah, uh, it's looking good. It is. It is. Um, I mean, there was. This has been going on for a while, right? We've known about the interest for ages. We've known about the background work that has been done. You know, Edu, um, you know, has that connection, the Brazilian connection with the player, with his agents, representatives, et cetera, et cetera. Had them over for a bit of a barbecue more than once, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, some cold ones on the on the on the patio, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we've known about this, but then it was reported. Was it Friday that we we got news of like the the bid? Fee or the, agreed. The, yeah, yeah, Friday fee agreed. evening, I think. Yeah, and then over the weekend, of course, we've got the um, the story about you know the the deal being done, everything done and dusted with the player, five year contract till twenty twenty seven, etc., etc. I mean. Do you think because this has been going on in the background and has been on everybody's consciousness for so long that we're at the point, you know, as fans going, oh, just get it done. Will you come on? Just, you know, get it just fine. We all know it's happening. Will you just, you know, announce Jesus, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and, and we kind of lose sight over what a big actual deal this is. I think this is a really exciting transfer which maybe because it's been going on for such a long time has lost a little bit of the the ooh-la-la or whatever the brazilian equivalent of ooh-la-la is yeah i think there's some truth to that i think you know there's sort of two big spikes really and that's like when a uh interest in a player is first reported as kind of serious interest you know that's really exciting Mm. and then when they're announced and they're in the shirt that's really exciting but I think the nature of kind of incremental reporting, which is sort of what the world demands at this point, especially when it comes to football transfers, is that I do think it slightly wears away some of that excitement. And um, we shouldn't lose sight of what significant signing this is, if only because it is the first striker, really, Mm. that Mikel Arteta has brought into the club. And in a position where we've been waiting to see a new arrival for quite some time and, you know, Arsenal had a number one target in this transfer window and they got him. And I don't think we should be too quick to overlook that. Yeah, because, you know, he inherited Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and Alexandre Lacazette, um, who for various reasons were there and going to be there for a, uh, an extended period, right? Because, um, look, Aubameyang's contract was extended under the um, the watch, if you like, of Mikel Arteta, and it was, yeah. you know, it was after the FA Cup final um, where he was going into the final year of his contract. I can't quite remember in my head whether or not he had become manager at that point, or whether Raúl was still there. But it was around that time, anyway, where he was gaining more control or about to gain more control. And certainly the decision to extend his contract would have been in no small part down to Mikel Arteta. So he, in some ways, um, I don't want to say stymied himself, but ensured that Aubameyang was going to be around. And Mm -hmm. Lacazette's contract was such that, you know, maybe we could have sold him, maybe we could have gone in a different direction a bit earlier, but I'm not sure there was necessarily the interest from elsewhere or indeed the the gumption on the part of the player to want to go anywhere else. Uh, you know, while he was at Arsenal, he he seemed to really enjoy his time here. He was best mates with Aubameyang, et cetera, et cetera. 
But this being then the first striker signing that Mikel Arteta has made, we're, I, we've spoken about this before, I think, and, and said, like, it'll be so interesting to see what he does and who he targets and what kind of player he goes for. And here it is. Yeah. And, and I don't think it's coincidence that he's gone for a Manchester City player in some respects because, you know, there was a lot of talk about will we go for a conventional target man and they looked at plenty of those, you know, guys who are over six foot, aerial presence, all of that stuff. But when you look at the signing of Jesus and you look at the options, the variety, the kind of diversity of attacking setups that Arteta can deploy at this point in time, mm. I do think there are parallels to be drawn with Manchester City and that kind of fluid, interchangeable front line where, you know, you can drop somebody in or out and it, it doesn't seem to make too much difference. I think that's clearly where he wants to go with this. And I think that signing, this signing, this type of signing as the centre forward mm. indicates as much. Um, I think it's a really interesting deal and it will be fascinating to see how Jesus gets on. You know, they've gone for somebody who he's not an undisputed clear cut number nine goal scorer. You know, he spent a lot of time in the mm. last few seasons playing on the wing for all the talk about Eddie getting the number 14. I think there are arguably more parallels for, for Jesus arriving into the club with Thierry and that, you know, is he a centre forward? Is he a winger? This is the question that Thierry faced when he arrived. And I'm really curious to see and excited to see how he gets on and how he handles that, taking that mantle on. I mean, we have to assume that he is going to, A, get the number nine and B, be the number nine, right? Yeah, I, I mean, think I think that must be plan A, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and like you say, I think it was, you just said it there, but I, was it you who tweeted last week or something about this idea of having a fluid, interchangeable forward line so you can bring players in, move them around, and you, you think about Martinelli can play right or left, Smithrow has played left and right, Saka can play right and left, mm -hmm. Rafinha, if he comes, can play right and probably play as a second striker as well. He Eddie can play Kenya. left too. He, yeah. People overlook he played, I think, a third of his Premier League games on the left last season. So right. Variety everywhere, you know, and uh, it, it does become quite an exciting cocktail of attacking players uh, that you could kind of throw out almost in any combination and you could see there would be obvious threat there. I mean, obviously some will work better than others, but Arteta would have a lot of options at his disposal with that group. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I wonder, is variety a way of becoming less predictable, if mm. you like? Um, I mean, it's great to have options. It's great to be able to move players around. You know, there is the slight concern that you've got uh, jacks of all trade and masters of none in some ways. I'm not saying that's that's the case, but maybe sometimes you just need that that prominent player in a, in a key position. But it's not always uh, necessary. You don't have to have that. Like, um, so I, you know, I'm really curious as to as to you know, how we're going to play. And I think we spoke about this last week when we talked a bit about Fabio Vieira and the idea that having more control, being a bit more dominant in possession, being able to press higher, being able to press more often in the opposition half could very well transform certain aspects of our game, you know, yeah. where, where we, you know, we didn't have that, for example, when Lacazette played at centre forward last season. He could do certain things, but pressing and high energy and doing it really high up the pitch was not part of his wheelhouse. 
you know? No. And and I've said this before on here, I think, but, you know, Guardiola and, and Chiche, the Brazil manager, have both called Jesus the, the best pressing forward in the world. I know it frustrates some people when you take a striker, a new exciting striker signing and immediately start talking about what they do off the ball. <laughs> but I, I think that is a massive part of where Arsenal are headed. And actually, when you look at Rafinha, and I'm sure we'll come on to talking about him later, you know, he was playing in a Bielsa team until recently. His mm. work rate off the ball is second to none, to be honest. He's a fantastic presser too. And you start thinking about a Brazilian front line, potentially of Rafinha, Jesus, Martinelli, the amount of work rate and energy they would be able to provide in terms of winning the ball back higher up the pitch. It's really, really mm. exciting. And yeah, I, I, I'm, I just think it's a, it's a signing that brings real flexibility. And what we know about Arteta is, I think he, he likes that. He likes to be able to change things game to game, in game sometimes. I think Jesus offers you that. The question mark seems to be his finishing. Speaking to people both in the data community and who've watched Manchester City regularly, you know, there, there is a little question mark over his finishing. Can he be a bit wasteful in front of goal? Um, but he's one of those guys who's got a good nose for getting on the end of chances. So, mm. you know, I mean, there were plenty of times we questioned Aubameyang's efficiency in front of goal, but if you get in the right places often enough, maybe it doesn't matter. And maybe he's got he's got some development there as well. I'll, I'll be curious to see, you know, to what extent he becomes the goal scorer in this team yeah. or if it's the case that his presence in the team and the evolution of other players kind of facilitates you know, other players uh, scoring goals and it being more of a shared effort. Um, hmm. I'm not sure, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I don't see him as like the mythical 30-goal plus a season striker. I, I don't either, really, to no. be honest. Um, and I'm not sure um, that anybody should. It'd be great to get that kind of player, but I'm not sure that that's necessarily what he is or what he could be. But I, I have to think that... In the conversations that they've had, you know, Edu, Mikel Arteta, with the player, like he's coming because he's convinced about, for want of a better expression, the project at mm. Arsenal, right? Because there was interest from elsewhere. And with a year left on his contract, he could have sat at Man City, could have gone on a free next year. But he's obviously been convinced by what they have told him both in terms of where the club might be going and what we might do, but also what their plans are for him mm -hmm. as a player and as a forward, as a goal scorer. There was a good interview with, um, I don't know if you saw it last week, Tim Vickery, I think, was speaking. I was, I was about to mention it. It's yeah. really good on Sky. Yeah, and he was talking about, like, you know, his lack of goals at the last World Cup and how that, that hurt him. Yeah. Um, and then his desire to play more as a wide forward than as a striker. But he's coming to Arsenal as our big striker signing. So the plan must be, for the most part anyway, to, to play him down the middle. And as much as you can talk about what he might do to facilitate others, and I think there's a very good argument to be made that, you know, a player of his experience and quality and pedigree coming to Arsenal will ease some of the burden that we placed on the shoulders of Smith Rowe, of Saka, of Martinelli last season. And when they didn't score, we were kind of in trouble. You know, we had mm -hmm. some goals from elsewhere, but, but from a goal scoring perspective, Lacazette didn't really ease any of that burden on them. Eddie did a little bit when he came in, in, in uh, towards the end of the season. But surely some of it has got to be about 
him as, if not quite the figurehead of the attack, but somebody who is going to score 20 plus goals for Arsenal across all competitions next season, that's kind of got to be part of the plan, right? Because those those other guys are going to score and he's going to help them and he's going to help the team be more efficient from an attacking perspective because of the way he might help us change the way that we play and how high up the pitch we play. But, you know, first and foremost, your job as the striker is to score goals. So I think there must be part of this where they've sat down with him and said, look, you've done this at Manchester City. I know people talk about the stats, but he's like 95 goals in 236 appearances for Man City with nearly 50 assists as well. So he's got end product. Maybe it's not as much as people might like, but it is still possible for a player who's just gone 25 to take on the responsibility of a new role at a new club with a level of expectation and improve and deliver I think so and I'm sure you're right I'm sure that those would have been the kind of conversations that Arteta and Edu would have been having with Jesus throughout this process and yeah I mean the fact that he's made that step that he's chosen Arsenal and this is where he wants to come and where he wants to play suggests he's up for the challenge Mm. and I don't I think we should be careful to uh, not right off his potential to do that. You know, I think sometimes when you sign a player from within the same league, there's a sense of, well, we know what he is Mm. um, and that's all he'll ever be. But I think you you can't underestimate going into a new team, a new environment, a new role, what it can do for a player's mentality, what it can do for a player tactically. Mm. Um, I think clearly this is investment Arsenal have made expecting to see development and improvement in Jesus, particularly in that centre-forward position. And Arteta will be working on it with him, you Mm. know, day in, day out, exactly what he wants from him. I think one of the things that probably appeals about Jesus is that he's shown real tactical intelligence at City and an ability to do different roles in a highly demanding Pep Guardiola team. So I think if Arteta spells it out to him, look, this is what I'm looking for from my centre-forward, Jesus has the intelligence to implement that. And it's going to be really a fascinating process because he's now working with his own tools, if you see what I mean, at yeah. that end of the pitch. Um, and I guess we're going to get a lot of answers in terms of what he actually expects from this number nine. Yeah, we had a question on the Discord from Elizabeth's Royal Arsenal who said, how much will it matter that Gabriel Jesus and Mikel Arteta have already worked together? I mean, do you think there's anything tangible or is it just sort of a, you know, a thing that happened and look, they have a relationship and clearly player knows manager, manager knows player. Um, neither thing is an impediment to the other for this deal to happen. Mm. But do you, do you think, is there anything more to it? Maybe Mikel Arteta feels like there's more to come from Gabriel Jesus based on the time that he spent working with him. Yeah. I mean, I think it's been important in getting the deal close to the line um, because, you know, those relationships have been key. And, and I think that something we shouldn't overlook here is I think in any argument that you might have, Jesus is a Champions League caliber player and Arsenal are not yeah. in the Champions League yeah. and we've signed a Champions League forward. And I think that's something, you know, the club deserves some credit for. And I'm sure that they've lent on those relationships to help make that the case. Um but the other respect in which it's interesting that they've worked together before is from what I know about Arteta and what I know about some of his recruitment decisions, he does like a known quantity. Mm. So if you look, he's bought quite a number of players from the Premier League 
He's targeted plenty too. This is another one. Uh, so he, he knows already that the player can cope with life in England, um, with the physicality of the league. And he's worked with him. So he knows all about his attitude. Mm. You know, that due diligence that he might have to do on another signing, you know, getting referrals from, uh, uh, you know, other coaches or colleagues or whatever it might be, all the background checks. He probably feels like with Jesus, he doesn't need to do that. He knows his character mm. intimately. So I'm not too surprised that Arteta has done that. I think that one of the things that was interesting about the Fabio Vieira signing is that speaking to a few people, they were like, well, it's a bit of a risk. You know, this guy, he's only played so much senior football. Um, you know, Arsenal had to move early to get him. And in some ways for Arteta, that's quite uncharacteristic to kind of gamble to that extent in the market. I think Jesus, mm. maybe some of the reason that, I think people are very excited, but maybe if there is anyone who's not, Maybe it is just that slight element of like, well, he is a bit of a known quantity. It feels a bit conservative. But I'd say where the kind of intrigue is, as we've just been discussing, is how does he cope with his role at Arsenal and how different that's going to be from what was asked of him at Manchester City? Yeah, I mean, look, it's all ahead of us. It's exciting to consider. And, you know, you mentioned he's a Champions League caliber player. He is. He's also a multiple Premier League title winner. And the thing about... I think about this, right? And I, I, if Gabriel Jesus was 30 and moving to Arsenal, you'd say, well, there's a guy, he's won it all. Now he's going somewhere where he can just have a nice time for a couple of seasons. But he's not. He's just turned 25. And players who win things want to keep winning things. Mm-hmm. And I think part of this is that 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 experience, I mean, maybe it's a little bit different when it's Man City, but, you know, being there doing that at the business end of the season, in the second half of the season in particular, where you need to be hugely consistent to get the results that you need. Um, you know, you you add those qualities to the squad as intangible as they are, or as, you know, you can't um, measure them statistically. Um, but But that experience is really important for a team that is, as we've said very often, young and relatively inexperienced um some of them have won a trophy because you know they're part of the FA Cup team in in 2020 but if we're talking about adding things to the squad which can help the development of these young players that kind of mindset that experience what he brings from being part of teams a team like Man City is is an interesting aspect too Definitely. And although he's not always been the main man at City, he has contributed. You know, it's not like he's been Mm. on the fringes. Um, His numbers last season were pretty good and he played a lot of football. And yeah, he will be coming into, again, a different role in the group as a kind of leader, someone setting an example, somebody setting the standards. And Mm. yeah, I think anyone coming from such a successful culture as Man City, that's probably... um, Just trying to shut us because that loud noise outside. But yeah, that's probably uh, a bonus for mm. Arsenal. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think it's it's really interesting. What do you make of the fee that's been agreed, the reported fee of £45 million? How do you feel about that in context? I think that's fine. I really yeah. do. When you're looking at players and strikers going for close to £100 million, when they've got time left on their contract, you're going to have to pay that anyway. You're going to have to pay that money if you don't get Gabriel Jesus. So it seems a bit steep for a player in the final year of his contract, especially as, you know, as Arsenal fans, we are, um, you know, we're a bit sensitive to that situation because we've got lots of players in that position who we can hardly sell for, 
for any money, it seems. But yeah. the the key the key thing here is when a player is wanted, when he's valuable, when he's I don't want to say when he's good because that's not necessarily the be all and end all. But but when a player has suitors because of his quality, you retain a level of value. Um, and that's been evident in, in the price that we paid. So I don't really have an issue with it. I think £45 million pounds for 25-year-old, international, hugely experienced, very productive, and hopefully even more productive uh, forward is is good business. Yeah, and there, there were suitors. I mean, you know, Chelsea and, and Spurs both let it be known at different points that they were interested in Jesus. Ultimately, that interest didn't develop into bids because it was felt that the player had given his word to Arsenal, had decided to join Arsenal. And again, that speaks to Arsenal acting quickly and decisively and being very clear that Mm. this was their number one target. I think that clarity of thought, that clarity of strategy has really helped. And, you know, it's not coincidence this deal is getting done relatively early in the window. I think it probably needed to be from Arsenal's perspective. I think the £45 might feel steep for a player in the last 12 months of their contract, but in the context of the centre-forward market... And buying a player from Man City, I don't think it feels too bad. Um, I also think it's interesting. I mean, this isn't a cheap deal by any stretch of the imagination. Jesus will be coming on a very, very healthy salary and probably will be the top earner at Arsenal, I would imagine. I'm thinking off the top of my head there, but I can't think of anybody who'd be ahead of him at this point. Um, but it's interesting that so many of the strikers we're talking about were in that kind of 70, 80 million bracket. And... I do wonder how often, if ever, Arsenal should be spending quite that much on a player. It's such a significant gamble when you get into that kind of Mm. money. And we sort of have slightly learnt our lesson on that, potentially, with the Nicola Pepe deal, which was a huge deal for a somewhat unknown quantity. Um, Hasn't ultimately worked out. So I think the fact that we've invested kind of a little bit further down in fee bracket. Uh, I don't think it's coincidence, and I think it's probably quite sensible. Yeah, we we had a question about that, and I'm looking for it desperately here, and I can't find it. I don't know if it was on the Discord or if it was in on Twitter. Yeah, it's on the Discord. It was. I thought this was an interesting question. I was going to bring this up a little bit later on anyway. And by the way, we've uh, as we're recording, we've made a signing. Um, Matt Turner is officially announced as an Arsenal player. Um, well, congratulations so, to Aguna as well. So there you go. Welcome on in, Matt Turner. Um, the Land on the Discord said, I think in the past there's been talk about how Man City's best business has been below 50 million. Mm. And he said, quite often above 50 million, there are serious mistakes. Pepe, Lukaku, Coutinho, Hazard, Pogba, Bale, Maguire, Lukaku again, Kepa, just to name a few. Are you happy with Jesus, Rafinha, and uh, Martinez, Lissandro Martinez, being in the bracket of high likelihood of success, but not absurd prices? And I think maybe it was last week or the week before, uh, if people have the ability to scroll back that far, I think it was Gabriel Marcotti did a, a sort of analysis of like the biggest signings of all time you know someone like Zhao Felix yeah. um you know these these 100 million plus transfers and how often you could uh, how many of them you could categorize as a success if you like and i think most of them aren't 
most of them, even if they work out okay, you wouldn't necessarily say that they've been value for money. So I do think there's something quite interesting to that, that the, the, the idea that ambition is in some way matched or tied to price tag is not really there for me. No, and I think that's been, I mean, you know, Grealish is an obvious exception, but I think that has been one of the smart things about City strategy that rather than going and buying a ton of 80, 100 million pound players, they've kind of filled out the squad with real quality in that sort of 40 to 60 million bracket. And I, I know, appreciate it sounds absurd to speak of kind of the 30 to 50, 40 to 60 bracket as the sort of conservative end of the big club spending spectrum. Mm. But I do feel more comfortable with Arsenal operating in that region. I just think, you, I mean, the list of names you read off there, it is kind of crazy, isn't it? When you think of the money that's spent on those players. And, and unfortunately, the money with that money comes so much scrutiny that I think that probably amplifies the discussion of some of those players. Whether or not that matters, I don't know. But they have to perform so well to even maintain their value, let alone mm. improve in value and become a saleable asset to the club. Um so I, I think it makes sense for Arsenal to be shopping in that sort of 30 to 50 million pound area. And I think, you know, if we talk about the downside, which is if we say, well, what if it doesn't work out? What if he doesn't become, you know, a reliable goal scorer? What if he doesn't settle at centre forward? Mm. I think the worst case scenario is we've got a really outstanding wide forward who has proved his pedigree at the top end of European football and we haven't, you know, broken the the bank to to spend to buy him yeah. on the fee. Yeah. Um, and so we're a little bit protected there. You know, we don't end up with a seventy million pound asset that we're worried we can't move on. Uh, and I'm not trying to dig Pepe out, but I do just think that was a very splashy signing. And mm. It was incredibly exciting, but I think on reflection, we have to say it wasn't especially smart use of resource. <laughs> no. No, that's being quite diplomatic. Uh, and I yeah. don't know that that's ground we need to, to go over again. But no, like, no, no. I agree with you. I agree with you. Like, it was exciting at the time, but, you know, it's been basically a, a disaster of a signing. And, and, you know, one which uh, the smell may linger a little bit longer because of the difficulty of perhaps moving that player on. But um, the other thing to say about Jesus, by the yeah. way, and I'm not saying. I think last January window will be um, continue to be debated and, and I think was a missed opportunity in a lot of respects. But I think it's probably fair to say Jesus is, is most likely not a signing we could have done in January. I can't envisage a scenario where City would have let him go given the fronts they were fighting on. Um, and I think the same is probably true of Rafinha, given that Leeds were in a very, very serious relegation battle at that time. Yeah. So I'm not saying we were right to not doing anything in January at all. I really felt we should have done and we missed an opportunity there. But in, in some fairness to the club, it does appear that their primary targets were players that it did make a lot more sense to move for or more, was more plausible to move for yeah. in the summer. Yeah, and if you do something in January where you compromise yourself, you then can't do as much as you might like to do in the summer window, or you might have to then readjust your plans. Um, yeah. And again, like you, I think we should have done something in January, even if I feel like 
ultimately it was more about the party Tierney injuries than the striker situation for me. Yeah, like, I kind of agree. I mean, I, I, yeah. if a new signing had come in and played the games that Eddie played and scored the goals that Eddie scored, we probably would have thought that was relatively successful. I do think the actual problems were probably in other areas of the pitch. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I I can't say for sure, but I, I'm pretty confident that if Partey and Tierney had stayed fit, we would have we would have finished in the top four, um, even with the the lack of goals that we had at centre forward for for too long in 2022. But um, yeah, look, it is it's very interesting, very exciting, an exciting signing, and I think one that you know hopefully uh, will be uh, pretty easy to get on board with when the season starts because like you say there's no adaptation he's been in England for five years now mm. he knows what the Premier League is all about uh, he should and hopefully will hit the ground running and of course he's still waiting for official confirmation uh, but we reckon that's going through and, 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 and he's joining a club with a growing you know Brazilian base um, he is I mean where was this question um, boom 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 uh, I've got to go through. Yeah, I mean, you keep talking there. West Antone actually said, will it be just like watching Brazil? Also, <laughs> how much of a boost will it be when we have four members of the Brazilian World Cup winning team back in the new year? <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't considered that a prospect. I mean, it's going to be really interesting because, you know, some of these guys are competing directly for places in the Brazilian squad. If Arsenal get Rafinha, he and Martinelli are arguably sort of fighting for the same spot. Um, so they'll be very highly motivated. I mean, that is an interesting thing about Jesus. I think when you sign any Brazilian player, you can't underestimate the allure that the Brazilian national team holds for them. You know, mm. how important it is to be with the Select Sound and to be selected for these World Cups. Sure. And, and that will have been a factor in Jesus's thinking and coming to Arsenal. What's this going to do for my place in the Brazil squad? Um and it looks like he's sort of, you know, looked at the situation and thought this is going to help me. Um, it's going to be interesting having a lot of players potentially go to that World Cup. And yeah, maybe they'll come back uh, full of beans or maybe they'll come back knackered and yeah. we'll get the other side of it. Well, but uh, yeah, it, I just think, you know, I guess we've got a Brazilian technical director. Um, it, uh, people have said for a long time that South America would be an important market for the Premier League, especially with Brexit happening and some of the changes that meant for the visa system. But it's also interesting, as I said earlier, that the Brazilians we're looking to sign are already playing in the Premier well, League. Well, I mean, that's it. I was going to say to you that like the... the It's the, the real change that we're buying Premier League players. Well, now. maybe so. But maybe the other thing is that, um, you know, someone like Marquinhos, another Brazilian mm -hmm. that we brought in this summer, and we wait and see where he might go. But... But is part of the plan or should part of the plan be to find the Rafinha before he goes to Leeds and establishes himself and becomes worth 50-odd million? You know, is that yeah, yeah. part of the what? Martinelli's. The, yeah, Martinelli's a great example, you know? Um, yeah, and maybe we're doing that. I mean, let's see what Marquinhos is. We certainly managed it with uh, Martinelli. And it is complicated for Arsenal by... Brexit and various other things. You know, these players can't really come from Brazil to England until they're 18. Um, we don't have the relationships to kind of station there somewhere in Europe prior. Mm. Uh, so it's a tricky one. But yeah, that, of course, that should be part of it. And if you'll remember when Arsenal 
made vast majority of their scouting department redundant. The one area they kept people on really was in South America. Um, and I'm sure that was the, with a view mm. to uncovering more players like Gabriel Martinelli. So what's um, what, what's the latest on Rafinha then? Because we've um, when I spoke to Charles Watts on Friday on the Arscast, you know, the, the consensus was, look, Arsenal have got encouragement from the player and the players' um, camp in order to bid. Now, the bid, we believe, was, was turned down by Leeds, but Arsenal mm. are reportedly going back in again for more. So what is expected to happen or, or how much can we expect to happen this week? I think this week will be big for Rafinha because... Arsenal and Leeds are due to speak this week and they've already had one bid rejected. Um, I mean, the figure that's been put out, you'll have seen in the media probably, that Leeds are looking for is £65 million. Um, I'd be surprised if Arsenal would go quite that far. But it's not impossible. I, I do wonder if Leeds could be talked down. You know, before the window, I was hearing mm. that they wanted 55 for Rafinha and I, I find that probably slightly more plausible. Um, their job of Arsenal now is to put an offer on the table for Leeds that's good enough that instead of rejecting it outright, as happened with the previous bid, mm. we get into a situation where they counter-offer. And from that point on, you're on a negotiation path that sure. probably ends in some sort of agreement. Um, and I think there's every chance Arsenal will do that. I don't doubt that the player would prefer to go to Barcelona, but I just think from what I hear financially, that's incredibly difficult for Barcelona at the present time. And they have other priorities as well, somebody like Lewandowski. So Arsenal are in a strong position. And I think, as was the case with Jesus, acting relatively quickly, being you know emphatic, is going to be critically important. So I would be, to be honest, slightly surprised if we didn't see some substantial developments this week in terms of you know further bids and some kind of indication as to which way this is going to go. But... I don't think Arsenal would be pursuing it this intently if they didn't feel that if once everything was agreed with Leeds, they would have the player. Right. There's a couple of questions. Like, there's one question that we're being asked repeatedly oh, yeah. about the Rafinha thing, which I'll come to in a second. But here's uh, an interesting one from Sam on Twitter, at SK underscore Arsenal. And he said, morning, guys. If we miss out on Rafinha, which is certainly possible with the amount of interest in him, it seems, do you believe the club have an alternative or do you think he's been identified very specifically and if we don't get him, no one will be signed for that position? Mm, I honestly don't know the answer to that. Mm. Um, my impression is that it is quite specific that this is a player that the staff really like for his individual qualities. And it's felt that, you know, he, he is kind of the right guy. And that's why I think Arsenal are going to be prepared to pay a hefty fee to land him. Whether it's the case that if they don't get him, there's a number two who would immediately step up. I honestly, at this point, mm. couldn't say. You would imagine so. I mean, if you're looking to add a player like that to the squad, but... I, I really don't know. What, do you, what would be your guess on that? I don't know. It, yeah. I just think it's a really interesting question. It might be quite specific to Rafinha, but if they are looking for somebody, well, I mean, like we said, he can play across the forward line as well. So maybe they might have a plan B or a plan C in that regard. You know, one thing that, one thing that um, we haven't really discussed or hasn't really been discussed too much 
when it comes to the signing of Gabriel Jesus and also Rafinha is that maybe there's an element not just of their quality as players, but just something in their characters as well that might be might be worth talking about because I'm not saying they're both um, complete bastards or anything like that, but they do have a bit of spike to them. We saw that with Rafinha. Remember when we played Leeds and he went crazy when Luke Ayling got sent off and I've got really no idea why he was going so mad because it was a red card every single day of the week. Um, but maybe he just felt a bit put upon the pressure of Leeds situation, whatever it is. But I do wonder if, you know, our... our We've got lovely players and lovely lads. They're nice mm. boys, aren't they? You know, Smith Rowe, Saka, Martin Odegaard. They're nice fellas. And I'm not saying they don't have competitive edge or anything like that, but there is a sense that maybe Arsenal could do with a bit of bit of contrary about them. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. And and also Jesus and Rafinha are a bit a bit older than those boys. You know, yeah, they're both yeah, yeah. in their mid twenties by this point. I mean, I'll be, I I really, really like Rafinha. Like, I think I've always liked him at Leeds and I think he's an incredibly exciting talent. And I also like him as a prospective signing because I think he is a nice dovetail for Jesus, potentially, mm. in that, you know, he, he is... He, I, I think he is a goal scorer, Rafinha, and I think he's a brilliant finisher when he gets the chances. And I could see them you know, in combination working really well. Um, quite what that would mean in terms of, you know, the other players in the squad and how we'd rotate and fit everybody in. That's all kind of TBD. But yeah, I think there is an edge to him. And we mm. saw that a bit in the two games we had against Leeds. You know, he mm. wasn't happy, um, particularly at the Emirates. So I remember when Luke Ayling was sent off, he was very chippy about that. Didn't he square up to Ben White as well at one point? Yeah, in, and in I, the I away can imagine I had a look at that and thought, I don't mind that, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, very interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that one, I have to say. Uh, okay, so let's do uh, one more Just quick Just a sort of word one. of warning is that, like, something more than one person has said to me, bear in mind these people aren't Arsenal fans, but within football have kind of been like, Rafinha is... Rafinha's too good to go to Arsenal. Someone else will come in. And so I, you know, that's just speculation on their part, but I hope that's not the case. And I hope Arsenal can get this deal done because I, I do suspect other teams may come out of the woodwork if, yeah. if and when it comes to the crunch. But you know what? This guy's 25, right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure Barcelona is a really exciting prospect for him, but sometimes the timing isn't right. When it comes to a deal, that's not to say that in three years' time he couldn't move to Barcelona. True, and I I do wonder if perhaps part of our methodology going forward might be to get a player at twenty eight, get three good seasons out of him, sell him at twenty eight, then or at twenty five, sell him at twenty eight, get some money in, whether it's more or less or there or thereabouts or what you paid or whatever it is, but you still get three good seasons out of him, yeah. you know. I'm I'm not that bothered. Like if Rafinha says, you know what, I'll play a couple of years or three years at Arsenal, and then I'm going to go play for Barcelona or I'm going to go play for Real Madrid, whatever it might be. This idea that we have to hang on to our players at all costs, you know, has been part of our problem at times. And and getting better at refreshing, even if you're losing players that you like, I think is an important part of how we develop as a football club. 
you know? When when you say losing players that we like, was that anything to do with the other question about Rafinha <laughs> that we keep being asked? No. I mean, oh. you know what? It is, people are asking, and I can't find any specific ones here, but it's basically, if we're signing um, Rafinha, tell me that, like, we're not going to uh, sell Bakayo yeah. Saka. There's uh, been one, a lot of that around, yeah. yeah. Keown's best mate on the Discord. Not so much a question as a plea. Please guarantee to me <laughs> right now that after spending all this money and the fan base is buzzing, we won't learn it's all funded by the sale of Bakayo to Man City for $150 million. And, like, there's, the question is, well, if Rafinha's coming and we haven't heard a dicky bird about uh, Saka's contract and Saka plays in that position, you know, is... As people, I've seen people refer uh, refer to it as the bad thing. Is the bad thing going to happen? And while I think it is a legitimate concern, and I personally would not be overly surprised if there was a sale this summer that people didn't like, mm. I don't think it will be Saka. No, I, I don't either, honestly. And and I've seen this kind of angst about this and I understand it. it there's a rationality to that and I think we all remember the summer where Arsenal went out and bought Giroud and Podolski um, and Cazorla and, and Cazorla quite relatively early on I thought oh this is going well and of course <laughs> it was because Robin Van Persie was on yeah. the way out um, so uh, yeah the trauma still lives with us but I don't think that's where this is going I honestly don't. I don't see Arsenal at this point letting Saka go. But I do think we have to be frank and say there is a chance that in the next few years, he might. Yeah. Uh, You know, he's going to the top of the game and I think it's a question if Arsenal will keep pace with him. And so in that context, adding a player like Rafinha before that happens and ensuring that you have depth and options and, you know, that you're not left in the lurch, that seems intelligent Mm. to me. And like you said, it might be Rafinha who in two years says, do you know what, I'm I'm off to get my move to Barca. But uh, in that situation, again, you're not left with this gaping hole in your squad. We we need a lot more than 11 players. And... Mm. I'm sure in Arsenal's conversations, I'm sure they'll get Saka tied down eventually. I really think that he will sign this new contract, but we've seen some stories suggesting maybe it'll have a release clause, even if it doesn't. I personally think it's a matter of time until a Man City or similar come and knock on that door for a guy who's going to be a leading light in the England team for a decade to come. Um, And Arsenal need to prepare for that eventuality rather than let it plunge them into chaos if and when it does happen. I agree. I agree. And I think I think we will get Saka tied down to a new contract. He deserves it. He needs and deserves the pay rise as well. Not saying he needs the pay rise. I'm sure he's doing fine. Um, but, you know, he deserves... I think in context, he probably, yeah, should be on a lot more than he's on he is for his role of, in the squad. Exactly, because of the, the deal that he signed. And I think, you know, maybe somebody like... Um, you know, we, we've talked about the agent, haven't we, in the past... Mm-hmm. but it is Nketiah's agent and we signed him when it looked like that wasn't going to happen and he's Balagoon's agent and we signed him when it looked like it wasn't going to happen. And I think if you're a Saka's agent, right, you're thinking, well, he is on the cusp of, you know, really becoming a huge player. He's on a two-year-old contract at Arsenal, which 
was a big rise back then, but in the context of where he is now, nowhere near what he should be earning. But if you're that agent, you're probably going to wait just a little bit when it comes to uh, Arsenal's transfer business. So you have something like a benchmark, right? Mm -hmm. You've got a Gabriel Jesus benchmark. You've got maybe a Rafinha benchmark. And then you, you talk to Arsenal about where you think your client should be in that particular pecking order. Yeah, I mean, you've got an Eddie benchmark as well, I suspect. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, of course. Very close to home. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, it's a really interesting time for the wage bill, actually. And, you know, there's a lot of questions about spending, but I don't think we can underestimate what has come off that wage bill in the last couple of years. I mm. think it's pretty astronomical amount of money. When you think about the players that have left the club, yeah. the likes of uh, Aubameyang, Lacazette, um, Kalasinac, uh, there are probably many more. Um, um, Mesut Ozil, Mustafi. Yeah, you know. and I think there could be more this summer if you think Bernd Leno could go, Hector Bellerin could go. I mean, these guys are actually some of the higher earners at Arsenal because yeah. of the contracts they signed when they were, you know, really important roles in the first team. So uh, there's going to be money there to play with. And I suspect a, a good chunk of it will be allocated to Bukayo. And I hope, uh, like all Arsenal fans, it's not left to the wire, uh, as was the case with, with Eddie and Balogun. Yeah, same. Same. Yeah. But I think this summer is the optimal time, you know, for him to to commit. I think he will want to commit. He's only 20 years of age. He's grown up here. And I think, you know, based on what's going on this summer, it is an ambitious summer, an exciting, ambitious summer from an Arsenal perspective. And if you're a player and you're looking to achieve what you want to achieve in the game, you know, again, if you can convince Gabriel Jesus to leave Man City to join Arsenal without Champions League football, but you can convince him that this is a club that's going places, you can do the same with Bakayo Saka. So I'm not worried about it from that perspective. But if we get to the end of the transfer window without there being, you know, any significant sale, I think I would be a little bit surprised. But that's, that's yeah. well, I mean, that's just a gut feeling. It's not based on any information or anything like that. But I do wonder, you know, maybe the sheer number of players that we move on might well offset what is being spent. But... I guess it depends if we can get rid of the guys we actively want to get yeah. rid of, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But it's interesting. We're not even into July. It's, you know, Alex Lacazette's still under contract to Arsenal, I believe. And yet we have today announced Matt Turner. Last week, Fabio Vieira, Marquinhos. It looks very positive that William Saliba is going to be returned to the club and Gabriel Jesus seemingly not far behind. Mm. That's a pretty substantial it's a good start, eh? improvement to the squad at this early stage, I think. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a really good start. Um, more to do, obviously. Um, but, you know, where we are this early in the window, um, and I know it's, it's, what, six weeks? Just over, maybe a little bit more than six weeks before yeah. the new season begins because it's starting early. So I think... Part of why we've done that is is to ensure we're in good shape for, for the start of the season. So it could be pretty hectic, couldn't it? I think just before we go into the break, one thing to mention is that in a normal summer, if this were a normal World Cup summer, we would be waiting for deals to get done because players would yeah. be away, particularly Brazil internationals. 
you you would expect to go pretty deep into a into a World Cup, right? So we'd be sitting there with all these stories going on, but with not much happening because it'll it, it's the whole thing. Well, nothing's going to happen while they're away on on World Cup duty, and then it's like, well, he's got to have some holidays, and you know you're heading towards the end of the window kind of stuff. So as drawn out maybe as something like this Gabriel Jesus thing has felt in the context of where it would be normally it's pretty quick yes true and I think um, you know it, it needs to be to a certain extent that Crystal Palace game it seems crazy saying this only about five weeks away I think some of the players are due back at London Colney this week to start pre-season so uh, it's, yeah it seems mad and they got mm. friendly next week Against Nuremberg. So, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, here we go again. But Arsenal are in a good position. And in fairness to them, you know, there was that January where we let it go by without making a significant addition. Mm. But it, it feels like they've come into the summer with a very clear plan, having done their homework, having put things in place with certain players. Um, and we're, we're reaping the benefits of that. Unfortunately, some of our rivals say Manchester United and Chelsea are in situations where they're betting in new managers, betting in new owners. Um, mm. They've got an owner as their technical director, bizarrely enough, at Chelsea. <laughs> that's, I mean, that that's either going to be unadulterated genius or yeah. just an absolute fucking shit show, isn't it? Well, I'm sure you'll all join me in hoping it's the latter. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, you know, Arsenal have had a little bit of a competitive advantage there where they've been able to move more quickly and... Uh, so far, that's worked. Hopefully, it works for Rafinha too. Like I say, I, mm. I expect there to be developments of some kind this week on that. All right. Okay. Well, look, we've uh, we've come to the end of part one, so we're going to take a quick break. Um, we'll be right back with more of your questions and more in part two right after this. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a gold t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. 
Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you're an Arsblog member on Patreon. And that is where you will find our new player uh, signing podcasts. So we'll uh, hopefully have more of those to come during the summer. Patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. Um, can I start? Uh, you can. This is one from NY underscore Gooner on the Discord. He says, Goodly morning, gents. Should we be excited for the success of other KSE franchises with the Rams winning the Super Bowl this year and the Avalanche potentially about to win the Stanley Cup? And I think they did win the Stanley Cup between the time that he wrote that question. He said, does this bode well for Arsenal? I know they've shown over the last 18 months a willingness to spend on the club, but does the success of other KSE franchises mean they'll turn their attention next to ensuring uh, Arsenal have similar success? One can only hope. And I've got a follow-up question on this one as well. I think it's difficult to make a case for why it could be a bad thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm mm. not sure how much it will help Arsenal. Um, but I do think it's an illustration of competence. What I would say is, imagine how you'd feel if KSE bought Arsenal today and they just won the Super Bowl and the Stanley Cup. Mm. You'd feel very different about that to probably how you feel right now. Mm. Um and and I do think that we we probably need to update our views on KSE a little bit. I, I do, and I, you know, it's really interesting. Um, I've had quite personal experience of this because we wrote a big profile on the Cronkies on the Athletic in 2019, and I don't mind saying we got absolutely hammered for it. And we were sort of told, you know, you've been very soft on them and blah, blah, blah. And basically the thrust of the article was they're more involved since they went 100% ownership. And they they basically have had more involvement than you think since that point. And people were like, this is bollocks you're talking about. <laughs> In short, you know, more, but sometimes yeah. more polite than that. Yeah, yeah, but, but often not. But without wishing to, um, <laughs> without wishing to blow our trumpet, I do think we were right. And it was early for people to adopt that perspective and i i think that their ownership of the club since they took 100 percent control has been much better and i think their success in other franchises is a positive indication for arsenal and i don't think there's much like i'm not sure what the cronkies will learn from that that will affect the running of arsenal but i think it demonstrates that they're not a hindrance to success certainly I don't think they are what's holding us back. I don't think. You know, it is it is an interesting one because I think the one of the criticisms or one of the things people would say about KSE was that they presided over a collection of middling 
sports franchises in the yeah. U.S., you know? And look, I'm not going to say I'm any kind of expert on U.S. sports, and I don't think there's really a direct line between success um, in those sports, in the way that they operate and financially, et cetera, et cetera, and what we need to do at Arsenal. But what you might hope is that they like winning, <laughs> you know, that yeah. they go, hey, it, look at this giant contagious? trophy. It's good. I, I, I want more of this. Um, so, yeah, it is It is an interesting one to consider. I don't think the the uh, winning the Stanley Cup has any direct influence on Arsenal's chances of success, but it might convince people that perhaps KSE are capable of doing what they said they want to do at Arsenal when previous to this there was little or no proof that they might be capable of it you know yeah and i think there are loads of sticks to beat kc with and i think a lot of them are fair you know questions about um appointment processes previously and mm. sort of the years of stagnation that that we suffered when the club had multiple owners um i think you know there are certain sort of ethical questions on sponsorships and things like that mm. um you know the erosion of fan shareholders and fan involvement in the running of the club the super league of course i'm not for a second overlooking any of that and i think a lot of the grievances people th feel about those things are justified but i mean purely in a kind of sporting competitive sense when you look at the money arsenal spent not just last summer probably the summer before that as well um I mean, probably going back to 2019, to be honest, which mm. was the summer which we did the Pepe and the Saliba deals. Um, you know, they are, Arsenal are spending money and uh, I think that indicates some ambition. But the other side of the coin, and it's a question we're, we're asked about quite a lot, is obviously where that money comes from. Yeah, here's a question because we had one from... FK, our good friend, F Carnage, F Carnage. F -carnage. That's how he uh, explained it to me anyway. Uh, he said, I'm loving this flurry of transfer activity, but how are we funding these signings? Is there a big departure on the cards? Long may the incomings continue, though, he says. You don't I'm, need to I'm, worry about how we're funding the signings because um, Bukai Saka will join Manchester City on the final <laughs> of the transfer. No, I, yeah, it, it is an interesting question, and I... and. We spoke about this a bit last week, but you know we know that Arsenal are in debt to KFC, essentially, at this point. They've taken a loan, substantial loan, hundreds of millions of pounds. Um, and all the questions around that are about what the repayment terms are and how punishing or lenient they'll be for Arsenal. And that's private, and we, we don't have that information. We're not um, going to get that information either, are we? Because Arsenal no, is privately not. owned. And therefore, you know, I know that... Um, you know, the AST always do extremely good uh, financial analysis of of our, our accounts year on year. And uh, there's only so much information they can get, though, given that these are, um, you know, they can keep a lot of stuff sort of private or whatever way they want to do it. Um, so we might never know quite what the terms of, of those no. loans are. No. The club described them as favorable. But well, they would, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's very difficult to sort of surmise yeah. what, what's actually going on there. Um, but the KSC winning thing is is interesting, and I, and I, again, I'm not an expert in American sports, but I understand the Nuggets look in pretty good shape and, and could be challengers um, 
in the NBA too. So interesting times. Um, could you correlate that to, I don't know, you know, Josh's increasing involvement across the network potentially? Um, well, you know what? I mean, the, the, the thing is, how will I put this diplomatically? I think they took their eye off the ball when Arsene Wenger left and when Ivan Gazidis left. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they weren't sufficiently on the ball to take their eye off the ball in the first I don't place. Think, yeah, I don't think they quite realised yeah. what they were getting into, you know? And what you would say about Arsenal over the last 18 months, two years maybe, is that there has been much greater focus on strategy and planning and implementation, even if we could talk about January as part of this, there is pressure or even a need to do certain things, but in the interest of the medium to long term, they're not going to compromise the short term. And I think we spent far too long as a football club compromising the short term without enough thinking about how it might impact the medium and long term. And, you know, we've been dealing with the ramifications of some of those decisions for years. Yeah, and I think we have to be realistic about the extent of KSC's involvement in any of these um, triumphs. And, you know, at Arsenal, it's not like Stan's picking up the phone to Mikel and saying, I think that Gabriel Jesus looks like a good player. Um, You know, ultimately if there are any sort of consistent threads or lessons that could be learned or, or strategic things that are happening, you know, from what I understand, KSC's a pattern that they have developed in recent years is the identification of uh, a coach that they really trust and backing them to the, to the hilt in some cases. And that appears to be being replicated at Arsenal. It's certainly what happened at the Rams. Um, and I, I think just kind of involvement, like I just think involvement and investment is is the key thing, and even something as simple as you know having their man on the ground in Tim Lewis on the board, I think indicates an increased involvement and attention to matters at Arsenal, which I think was, as you say, lacking in that period where their eye was was not on the ball. Mm. So, I, I, yeah, I'm not. I don't think they are a white knight or anything like it. I don't think there are saviors, but in a sporting sense. I'm not sure to what extent they are the problem anymore. And I do think that some of our attitudes regarding them can be updated. But as I I also listed, there are also ongoing concerns that are potentially problematic. And um, we have to remember, you know, the, the, their motivation is not the same as ours. It's not for the glory of Arsenal. It's so the value of their asset increases. Mm. Um, But, the kind of path to that may involve success, which we'd both appreciate. Yes, of course, of course. And look, you know, it is ultimately up to them to change people's minds about their ownership of the club, you know? Oh, Um, 100%, yeah. And, you know, we'll wait and see how it goes. We'll wait and see how it goes. But uh, I think having been very critical of them, there are certainly some encouraging signs. So let's hope we can continue. I had a question on this sort Mm. of theme from Jan or Jan. I think it might be Jan. Jan Hoppy on Twitter. Jan says, how do you feel emotionally, great start to any question, about us spending all this money to basically blunt force our way into the top four? 
or buy our way into the top four, he says, blunt force buy. It seems like KSC are buying fans' affections after the Super League. I miss when we were sustainable under Wenger because it was something to be proud of. Mm. Um, I mean, how do you achieve any kind of success as a football club, as a Premier League football club without spending money? I think we've talked about it being an arms race in the past. And it's true. There is no... I mean, you can spend a lot of money and not go anywhere, which is what we did when you think about some of the money that we spent. Remember the summer where we spent £100 million on Mustafi, Granit Xhaka, Lucas Perez. You know, that was, in inverted commas, sustainable, but didn't really get us anywhere. So you still have to you still have to marry spending with smart coaching, a good manager, good tactics, all that kind of stuff. Is Manchester United not the perfect example of how just spending money won't get you into the top four? It can take yeah. you straight out of it if you spend it badly. Um, so look, I, I think in an ideal world. Football clubs being sustainable or self-sustainable would be great, you know? Spend what you earn, spend what you generate, no shortcuts, no cheating the system by sponsoring yourself for £500 million when you're owned by a nation state or an oligarch or whatever it is. You know, if you could cut that kind of shit out, it would be great for everybody because I think the the playing field and the sporting playing field would be leveled somewhat. But, you know, I don't feel bad emotionally that Arsenal look this summer to be spending money, as they did last summer, by the way, spending money in a smart, strategic way. I've got a problem with wasting it, which is why I never liked deals like David Luiz or Willian because I'd never thought that was a, a good way to spend money. I know it's not my money and like who fuck who cares at the end of the mm-hmm. day, right? But I much prefer the idea that we are as a football club trying to build something not only that can generate success and hopefully bring us trophies and lots of happiness and all of that kind of stuff, but also um future-proofing is not quite the thing I want to say, but like uh, going back to the Rafinha thing, that if in three years we sell Rafinha to Barcelona for twice what we paid for him, bring it on. You know, that Mm. way the club becomes much more sustainable than it does when you buy badly in the first place, spend a lot of money, and then essentially end up having to pay people to go away. That's mm. not good. So I, I prefer this, <laughs> even if part of it, of course, is the fact that we appear to be bringing in some exciting, good players and who 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 struggles to get on board with that. Oh, yeah. And I don't think we should feel too bad about uh, about that. I, I think um, I, I wonder if it's only really possible, and you'd need a financial expert to answer this question, for, for a club of Arsenal's size to be... Uh, self-sustaining if they're in the Champions League and we're not Mm. at the present time. And so there's a certain extent to which we are, and it's certainly impossible to be self-sustaining in the context of the pandemic. Mm. And 
we shouldn't eliminate that from our thinking you know that cost the club a huge amount and so the idea of being self-sustaining effectively went out the window for a couple of years there um and if Arsenal are able to get to a position where they are semi-regularly qualifying for the Champions League, then I suspect they will operate in a way that it could be called more self-sustaining mm. because they'll have that additional revenue. But until that point, um, you know, they have to spend to to fix that problem, to, to get back in there. Mm. And so I... I don't believe it's a case of buying fans' affections. I'm sure it has that effect to a certain extent uh, on some fans for whom, you know, transfers are, are king. But I think fans are more nuanced and intelligent than that in their appreciation of any owner. And mm. I think... And, I, and to be honest, I'm not sure how much KSE care. I don't really think it's about our affection because they've never really shown themselves to be people that... that that fight for our affection, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. They've made decisions, yeah, that they want to make. Yeah. Although I do think that summer of 2019 was in some ways a, you know, if you remember, there was the We Care to You thing. And I'm not saying that that actively changed the club's plans, but I do wonder if it had some influence on I'm sure it resonated to an extent. Did. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there you go. Um, what are we moving on to? Uh, is it my question? I think it is my question, isn't it? I don't know. I've got one if you... If yeah, yeah, you... go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, Ashley Birkinshaw said, this may have been covered, but how are the improvements at the Emirates Stadium getting on? And what exactly are the improvements? A fresh field to the stadium will be a boost to the team and new signings. I, I know Andrew Allen attended one of the meetings and I think they are holding the details of that one back, but I know that there are plans. I, from what I understand, I think some of that work, I don't know how much, but I think some of that work is being earmarked for the World Cup break. Yeah. I think, not I think necessarily right. just the summer. So they may well be doing things over the course of the summer. I'm sure there are going to be things done over the course of the summer. But, uh, for example, it could be the the production of the new facade, whatever they're going to do to replace the legends on the outside, may not be ready until the World Cup break. That's I think that's right because yeah. they at this sort of fans meeting they were – discussing designs and they weren't finalized I think at that point so you'd imagine producing something on that scale and that size it's going to take a fair bit of time mm. so I think I think these changes are mainly going to happen during the World Cup but did you see that picture that was doing the rounds on Twitter which showed the Emirates when it was unveiled uh, and the Emirates today and I don't know how much the sort no. of color filters on Instagram have been played with but it was really striking. I mean, I, you know, because you see something every week or every day, you don't notice the kind of gradual degradation. But those images around the sides of the stadium have faded so dramatically. Yeah, I, I didn't, I haven't seen that picture. Um, but I, I did notice it when I was there. Um, yeah, probably because you don't see it as often, you know, yeah. so it probably stands out all the more. Yeah, they're very faded. And look, there's not much anyone can do about the sun. I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Unless> you do. <laughs> we'll try and find a way. Yeah, you do that. The, what was that episode of The Simpsons with Mr. Burns? And he put a big 
um, umbrella over Springfield. Maybe we need to do that. Maybe the idea is just get a gigantic umbrella over the stadium um, for future reference so we can, you know, we don't have to go down this road in, in 15 years' time. But yeah, it was quite noticeable. And, and uh, look, again, the thing is they're aware, they've acknowledged, there's been fan consultation. Um, I guess is one of those things that not everybody is going to gr- agree on everything that happens. But the fact that they are... Um, getting on top of this, even if, if it might take a bit longer, um, it is a good thing. You know, this is our home and it should be something to be proud of. It should look good. Um, it should function as well as any stadium should function. And that goes from ticket access to, you know, not getting drizzled on when it rains because the roof is leaky. Um, so- I did see they've introduced some new... Uh- what would be the word? Like little mini bars in the stadium. Oh, yeah. Um, they're sort of things to rest your pint on, essentially. They put them around the pillars on the concourse, like little circular bars. Because that is one of the problems at Emirates, that in the concourse there's nowhere to rest your drink. You see people often like delicately yeah. bouncing it on the edge of a bin. Um, that's not That's not ideal. It's not ideal. So, yeah, they've introduced uh, some more kind of, you know, areas to stand and be able to put your drink down Mm. um so yeah i think there are little things like that going on but i think the kind of big visual overhaul probably happen around christmas time but it's exciting and i think it will you know a lick of fresh paint um yeah just add something to that match day experience which has been fantastic since since we returned to stadiums yeah i mean you should always be looking to improve right Mm-hmm. Simple Absolutely. as that. In in every aspect of you know your club and how it's run and and everything else. Um, here's a question from the Discord from Higo, who mm-hmm. says something that's been bothering me with all this chat of transfers. If we think a bid isn't made without the player being happy to move, how do we consider the Aston Villa bid last year for Emil Smith Rowe? Just agent angling, or does it matter now that he's signed a new deal? Mm, well, yeah, I mean, I can't remember what I said exactly, but if I didn't say, I meant to say in most cases or in the vast majority <laughs> of cases, you know you've got the player on yeah, the side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... Sometimes a bid is just speculative, right? Yeah, and that was a bid that was really like... Um, caused a bit of aggro between Villa and Arsenal, all that, because Arsenal were absolutely clear in their kind of pre-bid communication with Villa that the player was not for sale mm. and the bid arrived nonetheless. Um, I think there were two bids, in fact, and that did not sit particularly well at Highbury House because it was like, we've made it very clear that, you know, we don't want to sell this player. Mm. I mean, you know, Villa are entitled to chance their arm. And I guess, I mean, listen, I'm putting two and two together here, but if you were Emil Smith-Rowe's agent and you're in the middle of contract negotiations and another club comes to you and says, we might be interested in the player. Mm. I suppose you're smart enough to recognise that, you know, interest from elsewhere might, you know, add a couple of grand onto your player's contract. I I mean, that feels quite logical, no? Well, I mean, do you think uh, Bakayo Saka's agent is going to talk to the club about the £150 million (laughs) that Man City are ready to pay for his client? I mean, unfortunately, I'm sure he will, yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah, that's just part of the game, I suspect. Um, and also, we don't know what Villa were offering Emil Smith Rowe. I mean, maybe Villa 
maybe Villa were prepared to pay him a really exorbitant amount of money and I don't know. Maybe but, so. you know, I think he was he was always going to stay at Arsenal and I, I that's my firm, firm, firm belief from Arsenal's perspective, from his perspective. But it probably didn't hurt him in those contract negotiations for it to be known that there were other suitors. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, but yeah, in most cases... Uh, in most cases, you do know that the player's going to sign. But goalposts get moved as well. That can happen in, in negotiations, you know, where you think everything is agreed. And then when you actually sit down, somebody's tried to insert a clause that hadn't previously been discussed. So, you know, mm. nothing's a sure thing. We found that out with Daniel Ballard this week. Well, too. yeah, yeah. His his move to, um, to Burnley, Burnley is, is off. And that was quite an interesting move for, for a young player, particularly given the fact that, you know, uh, a very, very good central defender is now, or ex-central defender is now the manager of Burnley. So if he is seeing something in you as a player, um, but we don't quite know exactly what happened to that deal to make it break down. No, we don't. Uh, what I would say is, assuming everything was all right with his medical, I think he'll have plenty of other interest and suitors. And, and that mention of Burnley and company being at Burnley, I think that's an interesting relationship to watch. I know Burnley's kind of anathema to us and we have a you know a very fixed idea of how we feel about that football club, but company and Arteta get on yeah. very well and there's a big connection there. I would not be surprised at all if you know if there are any Arsenal young players heading out on loan either this summer or in January. I do wonder if Burnley in the championship might be a destination. Ooh, that's in- yeah, that is interesting. I'd forgotten about the company Arteta connection as well yeah um so it's a, they're close yes um have you got one uh i can't remember let's have a look if you've got one then by all means go I, for it i do uh, um i'm there's a couple here about the refereeing uh, uh, story yeah. of the weekend um let me just see i've got all these tabs open here in twitter um oh here it is uh, from mark who's at gunner m90 and he said, goodly morning with Howard Webb to replace Mike Riley as new Premier League refereeing top dog. Do you not think it's time we get officials from other top leagues to start peer reviewing our officials? It feels as though most Premier League referees are pals and just stick up for each other. And I guess he's referring to um, Peter Walton on BT Sport, who somehow, incredibly, over the course of a season, never manages to see a referee uh, or a referee's decision as anything other than the right one. Um, and and we had another question on the Discord from Sonny Cool, who said, what changes would you make to the referees or their association? Obviously, Mike Riley um, is a big fucking pencil bastard of a man who I um, have no time for whatsoever. Uh, and I'm glad he's going because I think the standards of refereeing in the Premier League have been terrible, um, which isn't to say they're always brilliant everywhere else, but but he has been a constant source of frustration to me in my life for far too long for somebody I've never, ever met and will likely never meet. So I'm glad he's going. I just wonder how different is it going to be with, with Howard Webb? Well, is Mike, have you got to put up with Mike Riley for another year? Am I, I right I think about that? we do, yeah. yeah. He's, he's, he's going to be around for another year. It's or... next summer he's stepping down. It's interesting, we had a big conversation about refereeing the, on here a few weeks ago, and I can't remember if I mentioned Howard Webb, but 
I was thinking about him. He's been working in America, I believe, mm -hmm. um, maybe in the Middle East as well. But, you know, he, he was a, an English referee who, it's fair to say, certainly internationally, was very successful, like refereed at the highest level in international tournaments and Champions League. Um, and I think generally was pretty good. Like, I don't have any sort of particularly negative memories of him and Arsenal. Am he's, I... been, he's been gone for so long. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure I do, but I, you know. I don't have any sort of particularly agree. I mean, I'm sure there were incidents, but yeah, I, I, he always carried himself pretty well and seemed like quite a, um, someone you could respect at the very least. And he treated the players with a certain measure of respect. So I think that would be quite a good appointment if that's what happens. Um, I have no idea how you fix the situation. I think it's it's so complicated and it's not my passion area. So I, I do struggle with it slightly. I mean, do you, what would you be looking for from a new head of the PGMOL? Being an Arsenal fan? Uh, for them all to fuck off over a cliff and never come back. Um, sure. But then that leaves us, of course, with a slight dearth of officials. So I uh, we, guess... You and I can do it. <laughs> Could you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. 60,000 people who want to kill you every single day. Uh, you go out on the pitch. Yeah, give I'll only that. do it at the Emirates Stadium. That's <laughs> well, the rule. Oh, so yeah. Well, depending on your decisions, you could still have 60,000 people wanting to kill you, you know? Well, and, and look, I'd, I'd be a bit biased. I, you know, I, here's the thing about refereeing and, and all of that is, is I reckon that 99% of football fans will acknowledge that it's a really tough job. Maybe not even a very nice job. Um, you know, you are there one minute, the home fans want to kill you. One minute, the opposition fans want to kill you. And then you've got at least 50% of the players on the pitch who at any time want to kill you. And then the managers want to kill you and the coaching staff want to kill you. And you're trying to make decisions in split seconds and all of that kind of stuff. I think most people would acknowledge that this is a difficult gig, right? Mm-hmm. But what I think is frustrating or what frustrates people is the lack of transparency and the lack of accountability. Um, an acknowledgement that, okay, we got something wrong. You can admit that you got something wrong and say, well, next time we'll try and do better or we'll learn from this or whatever it is. I'm not saying they should like uh, prostrate themselves um, you know, on the altar of football fandom every single week. But I do feel like a certain measure of transparency and accountability in their decision-making would buy them a little more goodwill from football fans. Whereas what we have is a sort of ivory tower situation where they go back there at the end of a game. We never hear anything from any of them. Peter Walton sits there and defends them. And if they get something wrong or if there's something so egregiously wrong that they have to be punished for it, they don't, they don't get like suspended or they don't get like, oh, no game. We'll give you a game in the championship or in League One or League Two for a couple of weeks. And it's like, well, it's almost like punishing the other teams, you know? So yeah. I, I do feel like there are elements of, of how they communicate to football fans that could certainly be improved. And I think uh, another issue, and maybe it's a, a, a debate for another day, 
is the pool of refereeing or pool of referees tend to be uh, white guys from the northwest of England for the most part. Yeah. And that's not really reflective of the UK as a society in general. And it's certainly not reflective of the Premier League playing pool. You know, the diversity that exists within that. So some moves towards that aspect of things has got to be part of where they go next, I think. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more with that, particularly on the sort of diversity point. I mean, you know, there's a gulf culturally between the referees and the footballers and anything to close that gap would Mm. be very, very, very welcome. Yeah. Um, Cool. Cool. I, I, I've sort of like, we've sort of covered all the major topics I had questions for. So by all means, if you've got something else, chuck it in the mix. No, I think we're nearly at the end. I think yeah, we're nearly at it feels the end. that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, okay, here's a very quick one. Um, Jakey at Jakey AFC said, what's your opinion on all of the discussion around top four minimum, as well as a lot of other <laughs> expectations? It's great to have targets, but how important is it just to remember uh, to enjoy the ride? interesting one i mean it's you know social media being what it is as soon as news started coming through that it looked like jesus was an imminent arrival you saw a, a tidal wave of tweets saying this is it no excuses now for Mikel arteta um and that's inevitable to a certain extent and i think well to a certain extent it's true as well um i do think personally you won't be hearing me saying top four minimum, I don't think, because I, I just think it's too complicated to say it's that or it's failure. I just think that's too binary. And um, I mean, we I, could we could finish fifth and win the Europa League. That'd be good. Yeah, for example, um, or we could finish fifth, but top behind four teams that you know absolutely you know spend. 200 million this summer and blow everybody away. We don't yet know how the window will play out. We don't know what sort of competition we're going to face from Chelsea, from United. Um, So I I don't say that. I'm just looking as ever for progress and I want to enjoy the ride. As the question says, the journey watching my football team, the experience of watching the games, going to the games, talking about the games. I want to feel good about it. I don't want to feel bad about it. And I, I, top four should absolutely be the aim. Um, but for me, it's too simplistic to say it's that or bust. Yeah, you've got to have the context of the season. I think that's yeah. that's it. Yeah. But look, you know, I know... It could exa- be bust. There are certainly scenarios yeah. in which we don't get top four and it spells the end for Mikel Arteta because of the way things have gone. That That is a scenario. Mm-hmm. But I just don't think it's a purely binary thing. Yeah, just, you know, let the season start, see where we go, see how we're going. and, and <laughs> Let's you know. get that 3-0 defeat against Crystal Palace on the other day out of the way. Exactly. And, and then crack into the season yeah, proper. Yeah, exactly. We'll get, you know, we'll get ourselves started then. Um, yeah, look, where it's come from, I think, is that, you know, we had glaring shortfalls in the squad and came very close to top four. And if we're addressing those this season, then... People want to see us make the next step. And like I do, you do, everybody listening to this absolutely does. Um, but I, I, I... Every season is different though, isn't it, Andrew? Yeah. Like, it's not like we're going back in time and playing last season again with these new players. Oh, 
<laughs> we can't go back to January and be like, okay, we've got Gabriel Jesus now. Let's have another go. <laughs> like, I know you know this, but it's all relative, right? And sure. it will all be it, – it, it, who knows? Who bloody knows? Yeah. But, I mean, I do think you have to have expectations and aims and ambitions. For and, sure, targets. You know, yeah. if you if you fall short in a bad way, there are consequences for that. You know, if there are other factors involved, they can be taken into account over the context of a season. But, you know, I, I'm kind of enjoying the slightly offness of off-season, the excitement of the transfer window, and I'm not ready to yet build myself up into a state of frenzy which says we either do this or everybody must die. Yeah, to it, I'm not in that place either, and you know, I'm not often in that place. And I think, but let's be clear, top four or Champions League qualification by whatever, whatever means will be the target next mm. season. And that's not, won't be a shock to anybody at Arsenal for us to be saying that. No. That will be their clear, clear aim as well. Well, I mean, that is why they're spending the money. Yeah, you know? exactly. All right. Well, we're nearly at the end, but if I remember correctly, there was a promise last week of some magpie-related content. Yeah. yeah, well, we did promise it. And, yeah. uh you know, it was kind of like, we were like Josh Cronkey, be excited. And people have been excited all week. <laughs> It'd be terrible to let them down at this point. How, how many, Let me ask you this. How mm. many people have sent you the video of the magpie chasing the cat? A lot of people. In fact, I have to thank, I can't thank them personally, but since people heard about magpie facts returning, um, I've been inundated, Andrew. I, my Instagram <laughs> and Twitter inbox... It's chaos. It's 90% magpie content. I'm missing Likewise. key bits of football transfer information provided with you by contacts because my WhatsApp is just people sending me magpie stuff. Magpie, magpie, magpie. Yeah. yeah. So um, I have been inundated. Thank you. And fortunately, we had some breaking magpie news yesterday, which so we'll come to that. Okay. But before that, we should probably have uh, a jingle. Uh, it's by the way, it's quite the pivot for me from going to sort from sort of like sensible journalistic chat about transfers and club strategy to doing um, magpie facts. But you know, that's Look, the job, isn't it? You're you're, that's, that's, you're you're Mr. Versatile. You're basically the Gabriel Jesus of podcasting. I'm spinning plates can, here, yeah. guys, and the plates have got magpies on. Right, magpies. <laughs> Living in your garden, they're listening to Phil Collins on a twenty-four hour loop. Magpies. Black and white, perfectly disguised to attack a zebra. Magpies, they tried to buy Newcastle Football Club. Of course they did, they're magpies. But they didn't pass the fit and proper owner's test. How evil must you be to fail the fit and proper owner's test? Magpies, Australian ones are more evil. They're just like humans. Magpies, magpie facts. Bravo, bravo, you're best yet. Thank you, mate. And do you want to hear the magpie facts? Oh, well, this week? I, I mean, I, I, you just built me into a state of tumescence, essentially, okay. So a magpie this, fact. This uh, was published yesterday in the Manchester Evening News. So we know it's reliable. Mm -hmm. I'll give you the headline. Injured baby blackbird dropped on pavement by magpie recovering after couple gave it life-saving tweetment. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> There's a lot going on. Right. Right. I haven't read all of this yet, but we'll find out what's going on. 
The bird was saved by Anne Thompson. So a baby blackbird is on the mend after it was dropped on the pavement by a magpie in Tildesley. And a worried couple gave it some life-saving treatment. They're really happy with that treatment. They've put it in the headline and and the the body of the article. Anne Thompson, an electrical fitter, was walking in Tildesley when she says a magpie flew out in front of her, was startled and dropped the little chick which it had in its beak on the pavement in front of her. So hang on. The magpie has stolen this chick. They're always stealing things, but I thought they stole shiny things. Was it a particularly shiny baby blackbird? It was sort of, you know, when little baby birds are quite wet and slick. So maybe the light was reflecting of it. But I presume it was going to eat it. Uh, Probably. I mean, We know they're evil. Now, or, I mean, she says the magpie was startled and dropped it. By by what? Was it was the magpie startled by Anne Thompson? Yeah. By Anne Thompson, electrical fitter from Tildesley. Now, I think she's being generous. I think the magpie threw this bird to it to its fate on the pavement. I think it was just trying to splat it like Yeah. Yeah. Now well, let's see what happened. Worried Anne, noticing that the little songbird had hardly any feathers and what looked like an injured head. Well, it sounds like a beautiful bird. <laughs> Picked him up from the pavement and held him for half a mile. She walked to her address. They've measured how long she held it in miles. Interesting. Where she, where she lives with husband Donald, who works in renewable energy. One thing I'm glad we know it's is what- the industries that Anne Thompson and Donald work in. It's true. I mean, they're very important aspects to this story. The, cu- the couple then nestled the little chap, who they say was semi-conscious, in a sandwich box full of tissues and were able to give him some water. The next step was to take him to a small voluntary bird rehab. Maybe he was an alcoholic or something as well. <laughs> it's probably where all his feathers went. You know, he just <laughs> fell out because he's just fucking mainlining gin all day. Drug abuse yeah. and stuff. Donald said, well, we've got a quote from Donald, it's a cruel world out there. I just hope he survives. It is a cruel world as long as there are magpies on the loose. Happily, are you still there? Yeah, no, I'm still here. Oh, right, you're on tentooks. Right, okay, I just, you know, just stunned silence. Happily, staff at at the Wildlife Rescue Centre say the bird is healing and pulling through. Stephanie Williams, 44. (laughs) It's good to get her age in. She said... What does she do, though? She works at the bird thing. She works at the birds. Do we know that? She owns it, actually. All right, okay. He's doing really well. His little eye was swollen, but is getting better. Such a beautiful bird. His feathers are coming through, and he is looking more like a bird. (laughs) Oh, my God. We will keep him with us for a couple of months and teach him how to forage for his own food. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> before releasing him into the wild. How are they teaching him that? They're just... <laughs> you imagine them just walking around the undergrowth outside the thing. Now, this is what... Ah! Yeah. yeah. Like just digging for the worms. Supermarket. Digging for the worms. Frozen art. Uh, a delighted Donald said, if it wasn't for that charity, I don't know what happened to that little bird. We're so pleased with their support. Stephanie says, no name has yet been given to the baby bird, but she would welcome any suggestions. Well, there's your mission, Arsenal fans. What are we going to call this? What are we going to call this? This This creature. This this disgusting creature. Maybe the magpie was doing the world a favour. I I mean, honestly, this little thing, I don't know if it should be staying alive from the sounds of it. 
Magpies have a keen uh, aesthetic sense, you know. They could have. Yeah, been, this exactly. is just too too grotesque for the world. We've it, we've got to get a rid pity, of it. A pity chuck onto the pavement. <laughs> but I think we should remember the words of Donald. Go on. Who who works in renewable energy? It's a cruel world out there, and as long as magpies are on the loose, that will remain the case. That's very true. Well, look, I think that is some top class magpie content. All I will say to everyone is, if you're not looking your best, if perhaps your own plumage is not where it should be, if and you've you're got out, an ugly child, beware. <laughs> Don't <laughs> um, leave them unattended. Could well snatch it up. <laughs> Mary <laughs> Jones, uh, plumbing director, was startled <laughs> when a baby was thrown at her feet. Yeah. This poor baby. Yeah. Fortunately, he's on the men now and looking more like a human. <laughs> All right, folks. Um, take care out there because it is a cruel and dangerous world. Um, hopefully, we get some good news on the transfer front this week. We will, of course, cover it on site in podcasts and all the rest. For now, though, um, oh, you're not going to be here next week because you're on your holidays. Isn't that right? Oh, yeah. I'm in Cyprus, yeah. You're going to be in Cyprus. So we will have an Arsecast Extra next Monday, but it won't be with James. Who will it be? Tune in to find out. I don't have a fucking clue at this point either, so it's going to be a big surprise for everyone. Yeah. It's going to be with Anne Thompson, electrical fitter. (laughs) She's going to tell you all about the incident. 90 minutes of of one magpie fact. I think that's Mm -hmm. uh, what the people want. We'll have made all the signings by then anyway, so football content will be at a uh, minimum. Anyway, we'll leave it there. Folks, thank you as always for listening, and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye.